Please be seated. Welcome. Good morning. If I could just uh, reinforce what Joel and Brad have been sharing uh, with a very brief illustration. When I was ministering at Epping Church of Christ a long time ago, part of my role was to teach scripture at Epping Boys High and Cheltenham Girls High. The boys I was okay with, the girls didn't quite know sometimes what to do. Uh, and there was one particular class, it was a year 12, and uh, I remember it vividly. I, there were two girls who sat in the front row and when I talked, they talked. As soon as I stopped, they stopped. And as soon as I started again, they would talk. I had no idea how to handle that. About 15 years later, I was preaching at a church in Tweed Heads and after the service, a lady came up to me and she said to me, you won't recognise me, but I was in your scripture class at Cheltenham Girls High School and I looked at her and I recognised her. <laughs> she said, I just want to say two things to you. One is, I'm a committed Christian today. I'm sorry for the way in which I behaved in that class. And the second thing is, the way you presented Christianity was a major factor in me becoming a Christian. So never give up, never think that you're sowing seed that actually couldn't bring a harvest. And those schools just gold in terms of capacity to share the good news. Okay, we're at... Uh, uh, just over halfway through the Gospel of John, would you believe? <laughs> just over halfway. But we're actually a long way through the life and ministry of Jesus. We're probably within about six or seven weeks of his ascension to his father. And uh, previously, at least 35 years have been covered. So we're coming into the, the business end if you like, of the gospel. Um, I even would present that from about a chapter ago through to the end of the gospel of John, there's the play out of an incredible melodrama. And today's passage is about part of that melodrama. I, I, I looked up what a melodrama was um, and I gather that there's a hero, Jesus, there's the baddies, and we'll work out who that is as we go through. There's a crowd that could go either way, and then there's the goodies or a committed group of people. And if you were writing a novel, I don't think you'd dream up, dream up the twists and turns that happen yet in the life and ministry of Jesus. Truth is stranger than fiction. Go back a little way and we have just considered Mary anointing Jesus' feet with the very expensive oil and then uh, there was, uh, just before that, there was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So quite dramatic 
things have happened or begun uh, to happen. There were basically three groups that are presented in this passage. So I'll just read the passage and I'm reading it from the NIV version. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only, only after he was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised, and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Let's just watch about a minute and a half depicting a part of that Palm Sunday story, Palm Sunday. So part of God's story happened on a day we call Palm Sunday, and it begins like this. Remember how God sent his son Jesus to rescue us? Well, not everybody believed that Jesus was really God's son and the rescuer, but the ones who did believe in him did something pretty cool on Palm Sunday. It started just like any other day for Jesus. He was heading into Jerusalem with his disciples. But before they got there, Jesus did something surprising. He stopped and sent two of his disciples to go get a young donkey from a nearby village. He even told them exactly where the owner had last tied it up. They weren't sure why he needed the donkey, but they obeyed him. Kids, would you be willing to obey Jesus even if he asked you to do something you didn't understand? Anyway, when the disciples got back with the donkey, they threw their coats on its back like a saddle and Jesus climbed up. Pretty soon, the disciples saw why Jesus needed it. See, crowds of people came to the road and started laying coats and tree branches to make a path for Jesus. When this happened, many people recognized that Jesus was a king. Only kings came into a city like this. So Jesus rode the donkey, like he was a one-man parade. And the crowds praised Jesus by yelling things like, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and peace in heaven and glory in the highest, because they believed Jesus was the rescuer. And of course, we still celebrate Palm Sunday, which is four or five days before the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Three groups. The crowd. From the background given here and some other um, areas of scripture, the crowd was probably mainly made up of people who came from outside Jerusalem and they came to the Passover feast because that was what was needed. It was going, as it were, to the Mecca of the religion, Jerusalem, to celebrate perhaps the most important thing that had happened in the nation of Israel, the freedom from 
Egypt. So most of the people would have been from outside Jerusalem. Um, maybe quite a few of them from Galilee where Jesus was brought up and where it tells us that he'd done quite a few miracles and therefore they were potentially celebrating the miracles, either the raising of Lazarus or miracles that he'd done previously in shouting out Hosanna, which actually starts off as a prayer but then becomes bravo. So this is a very positive crowd for Jesus. The question that is a little bit difficult to face up to is, where were all these people a few days later? What happened to them when Jesus was in real trouble? There weren't many people around the cross and potentially only one of his disciples were there. What happened? Um, I don't know, but can I just suggest to you that... um, This was a crowd that was potentially there primarily because of miracles and you know that John says that these miracles are a sign of who Jesus is and they're very important in the life and ministry of Jesus and they are very important to us. They are also a sign of the compassion of God to care about people who are in difficulty. But on Two previous occasions and then a little later in this chapter we find Jesus either in a similar situation at a previous Passover or teaching his disciples just be a little careful about those who have come to me and purport to be disciples because they are following me on account of my miracle. Now, that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, it's, it's a major, I think, a major opportunity to see the power of God and the compassion of God, but there would be many, many people, maybe quite a number of us who have an ambivalence about miracles. And Jesus was just saying to his disciples, and on one occasion it says... These people came to follow him, in inverted commas, but Jesus didn't actually trust them because he knew the hearts of people. So potentially at least some people within this crowd were people who could go either way and they could be with Jesus on Palm Sunday but not there when the chips were down. Uh, perhaps they were uh, Easter and Christmas Christians, fellow travellers. Now, I don't want to put that down in one sense, and that is that um, I reckon there were many of them who became avid, zealous followers of Jesus and maybe went back to their own homes as incredible spreaders of the good news. But the other dilemma here is that miracles are incredibly valuable and real and important today, but we can't base our faith 
on them. In fact, and I'm not going to go into this, but I'm aware of many people, even very, very committed Christians, for whom the lack of a miracle is a major dilemma to their faith. You know, if God can do miracles, if he's all-powerful and he's all-loving, and somebody whom I love deeply and we prayed uh, and we committed it to God and we believed that God would work and the person died. Now, now's not the time to unpack that, but can I just give you a little hint as to how I found my way to some understanding of that, and that is that if God always did a miracle, every time there was a dilemma, then he would be working against his gift of free will and stewardship to us to work out the best way to do our part of the situation. So that if I could pray, Lord, protect me as I drive home later today and then I drive like a maniac because I believe God will protect me, that's actually irresponsible. Now, I don't know why God sometimes does do miracles and other times he doesn't. But can I just suggest that there's an analogy here that helps me understand it and that is as a parent. You know about helicopter parents, don't you? Helicopter parents, I gather, because certainly you know, it's, it's a little bit after our early parenting time that this became more of a vogue, are parents who are um, protecting their children from anything that might go wrong, so you're not allowed to go out and play. We used to have the neighbourhood as our as our player, I'm amazed my mum and dad never knew what we did or where we went. We were all over the suburb doing all kinds of things too. I'm just grateful in a way that my mum and dad weren't helicopter parents who would have wrecked our childhood actually. But what the psychologists say to us is that it actually doesn't get you ready for real life. That in actual fact, when you are needing to be responsible and are recognising that there's turnarounds in life that are not necessarily your own fault or there's anything that can work out, whether you can handle them effectively or not. So I'm sorry if I raise something, but I've come to actually think that there's a loving, gracious God who in his wisdom is very very much for us in all of our lives, including when he does miracles. But then the other part of this crowd that's absolutely astounding is that he rode in on a donkey. A donkey! I mean, just to say it, the way it's... It, somebody is a fool if they're a donkey, aren't they? And in those days, um, a donkey, which was a young animal... Um, Peterson expresses that uh, the foal of a pack animal, a pack animal, no prestige there. And Jesus rode in on a donkey. Let's have a look at uh, a very brief passage in um, Zechariah. This is the Old Testament um, uh, passage that um, was the prediction of what happened. This is Zechariah 9 and verses 9 and 10. Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise your voice, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming, a good king who makes all things right, a humble king riding a donkey, a mere cult of a donkey. 
I've had it with war. No more chariots in Ephraim. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. So I mentioned this might even be considered to be a parody, but in actual fact it's much deeper than a parody. This is Jesus coming, not on a war horse, not triumphant as the king who's going to bowl every opposition over um, with uh, arms and, uh, and power. This is Jesus coming humbly, caringly, to die on a cross and to rise again as his most significant and powerful act. This gives a different paradigm for power and can I suggest to you that that's one of the deepest teachings of Christianity, that power, the capacity to influence is actually a privilege that needs to be used gently and courageously. It needs to be the lack of bullying. Um, as it says in one part through the message, strength is for service, not status that the whole idea of Jesus as king, and they were celebrating him, Hosanna, whatever, it was right to do that. And Jesus didn't even deny that he was a king before Pilate, but he was a different kind of king. And we will express different ways of power through Jesus. The power to influence, that doesn't mean we won't sometimes have to be strong and courageous and persistent but there's a gentleness and a kindness in the power and the influence of God. The second group was a group that we know well and have been featured in the book right up until now, and that's the disciples group. And they were probably on Mount Olives in the Palm Sunday crowd, because we know at least that two of them had gone and gotten the donkey for Jesus. So we believe that they were probably there. Um, and, and we see the disciples group, it's almost a, a, an encapsulated picture of where their life is now compared with where they were and who they became. Jesus had spent three years with them. Um, they had committed themselves to him. In fact, when Jesus said to them, we're going back to Jerusalem, uh, they said to him, no, don't go there because you'll get killed. And then one of them said to the others, oh, we might as well go. Let's die with him anyway. That was bravo, wasn't it? Bravado. Um, but here they were, at this time, they were mulling things over. They didn't quite get it. What's this all about? And it says very briefly towards the end of that passage that we read today, when Jesus was glorified, and I'll say what I think that means in a moment, they got it. In other words, there were still questions there was still, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, very much in these disciples. 
But once Jesus had died, risen again and ascended to the Father and they realised how many prophecies, like the one from Zechariah, how many prophecies related to Jesus, then they got it. So they were on a, a journey and I think it's a journey very, certainly very similar to my journey. Um, and, and, and it's um, a disciple, yes, a committed disciple, but sometimes um, letting him down. Sometimes either not understanding or questioning and a growing faith every day, every year, but I'm looking forward to a day when those questions will be answered. Glorified, Jesus rose from the dead and then he ascended to his father. In other words, there's this incredible twist in the melodrama. The person who seems down and out and a goner actually wins in a most unusual but incredibly powerful way. And then there was the third group. This was a group that sometimes came to the fore in questioning Jesus or opposing him, but mostly they were in back rooms plotting and planning. And at this time they were plotting and planning how to kill Jesus because they were incredibly jealous. They were jealous of the crowds that were actually following him. And they'd almost given up as expressed in the last verse of this passage that we're dealing with today. They, within a few days, they were going to have their spirits lifted incredibly because they were going to win, win in inverted commas. Jesus was going to be shockingly condemned to death and then crucified and they thought they'd got rid of him. These are the people who are openly hostile towards Jesus and Christian faith and you know that that group of people is increasing in Australia today. That group of people is actually becoming more and more audacious today, more and more proactive. They are not religious leaders, but they often are the people who seem to have so much say or power in our society. They often are people who are either agnostic or atheistic and they are becoming more and more open about that opposition. I have a colleague, Kevin Symington. Um, he trained at our theological college. Um, he lives on the central coast here and he does a blog in, entitled Smart Faith. I've been um, reading that blog every week for about the last six or seven years and it's an apologetic approach. Uh, he's done a lot of work in areas of science. He actually writes science fiction books as well and he's very, very clever and he's very well versed in both Christianity and areas of 
philosophy and antagonism. And one of the things that he shares semi-regularly on his um, blog is that um, he gets abused. He gets people writing to him and um, being vitriolic. And he's basically, even you can almost see him holding up his hands and stuff. Where did that come from? Why? Why so much antagonism? So the leaders of the religious groups that were jealous and anti-Jesus, those groups are actually gathering more and more today. I want to conclude with a, a question and two challenges to myself and to you. A question, where are you at the moment? Which group surrounding these events would you most identify with? I think most of us would be in the disciples group, but there may be some of us here today who, for whatever reason, are seeking or um, we've not made a deep commitment to Jesus. It's not that we don't believe, it's just that our faith hasn't been vital. And you're welcome. Great that you're here. Uh, I was for about 10 years very much in that group. For 10 years, I still attended church because my parents expected me to and I didn't have the guts not to. But I actually had a very diminished faith um, to the point of being almost atheistic. Um, and then a person whom I got to know who was a committed Christian got alongside me and helped me to become a follower of Jesus. A committed follower of Jesus. All of my church experience beforehand I value, but it had not allowed me or prompted me to become a passionate follower of Jesus. So we're, whatever group we're in at the moment, and you know that there are many, many atheists, world-renowned atheists who have researched the um, evidence for the, uh, the resurrection, whatever, and have written books and openly have become committed Christians. And all of us as disciples, there was another small group that I've alluded to very briefly, and that was the people who had the devotion and the courage to be right there on the spot when Jesus was crucified. And there were at least three women, um, Mary, Jesus' mother, her sister and Mary Magdalene, and John was there because Jesus committed his mother to the care of John the disciple when he was hanging on the cross, can you believe? So we, we know that there was another group of people who had gone deeper, who actually had courage in their convictions, who actually were devoted to Jesus in such a way that the terrible situations that were unfolding, 
they were actually wanting to be as close as possible. So the two challenges are, would you consider actually moving and going deeper today, whichever group I am in, you are in? If we have been nominal, would you think that it's possible that you could get a new life and become a follower of Jesus through his death and resurrection and the rest of your life could be lived in a way that Jesus says is life to the full? Or if we, and I put myself in this, um, if we as disciples would sense that God wants us to go deeper so that there's sensitivity but courage in our expression of the colours and flavours of God so that we actually can help other people to become committed Christians. Or you may have been antagonistic, but Saul of Tarsus was the most prolific and brutal antagonist towards Christianity in all of the first century. In fact, he boasted at one stage that he was ahead of all of the other Pharisees in being a Pharisee. And that was no mean feat to be right at the head of the tree. And then he met Jesus. Then his life was changed. So my question is, where are we now today? Two challenges. Would you consider going deeper? And the third challenge is, please don't ever give up on anybody else. If you pray for somebody, if there's somebody whom you would deeply love to move from one of those groups to go deeper, don't give up. God is always at work and there are miracles happening of life change. And I could give you example after example after example of people whom other people have prayed for and in circumstances that were unpredictable at some stage have become a Christian. I'll finish with one example. When I was young, I said we went to church regularly. We lived at Oakley in Melbourne and I remember going to a tent mission and the missioner was a guy by the name of Jack Bond and he became a a very well-travelled, quite famous missioner within Churches of Christ. And I remember this particular evening, there were two people came forward and they were elderly people and they stood at the front to make their commitment. And quite unusually, Jack Bond made no move whatsoever. And then at the end of the hymn, he moved down, I'll probably get a bit emotional, he moved down and embraced these two people. And he said, for 17 years, I have prayed every morning and every night for my mum and dad. And here they are. Never give up. Can we pray? Father, thank you. Thank you 
that we can say hosannas, that we can praise you. Thank you, Father, that you call us today as disciples or wherever we are to go deeper. Help us, Father, in that quest so that we can be more effectively glowing light and salt within our world. Father, thank you for the way you work in ways that are wiser than we could ever dream up and have the long term and the big picture in mind. Help us never to give up. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.